Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct the Podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. And I'm Levi's complete lack of surprise. Fight Club is the movie we watched this week. Levi, give us a synopsis of Fight Club. With a gun to his head, our narrator takes us back to a monotonous life of Ikea furniture, condiments without food, and a dull day job. He seeks peace and support groups for life-threatening issues, and here is where Marla upends his life, a mirror to his hypocrisy. Then he meets Tyler Durden. When the narrator's condo is blown up, he is goaded into fighting Durden, and they become fast friends and roommates. The boys begin Fight Club, while Marla and Tyler begin a strange relationship, trapping the narrator in between. Slowly we come to understand that Durden is truly militant in his philosophies the fight club becomes more active and the narrator becomes less aware of its activities until people begin training at their home after a member of the fight club is killed in an operation the narrator begins to trace durden's footsteps only to discover that he is tyler durden and that the organization is trying to blow up the financial system to set the world back to zero the narrator confronts durden and shoots himself in the head in the ultimate expression of free will but the explosives still go off in his first clear-headed moment the narrator and marla watch with an odd optimism as the world of finance comes crashing down. Great movie. <laughs> you say great, I say Baba da Bop. Is that a, I didn't know that that was your your rating. That's my system. review. I gave it a Bob. I give it a Baba da Bop out of a Baba da Baba da Bob. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely not the moving film of my younger years, uh-huh. and at this point there is more hypocrisy in the movie than i realized yep uh so it was i enjoyed this watching it was with a different mind view than it's probably been you know six or eight years since i've seen this film and a lot has changed in life and Mm -hmm. seeing it through a different lens i i still appreciate this movie but in a wildly different context yeah you know what I, I think the probably the last time i saw this movie i was probably in college uh i had a big dvd collection when i was in college and i kind of prided myself on it but one of the things that i would do is every tuesday at best buy they would discount a cert, a new batch of movies down to three dollars a piece so i would like go to best buy every tuesday and i would buy like five dvds uh and i amassed quite the dvd collection doing this and of course nowadays that dvd collection is worth less than even a vhs collection is but uh this is one of the movies that i bought and as a college kid i i didn't have the fight club poster but i think i mentioned last week that a lot of the fight club poster was like a thing like it was yeah i'm trying to remember if i had one i'd have to ask jordy if he remembers one from our dorm room wall because i definitely i had the same thing you buy movies and movie posters and that's how you show people you're smart and cool (laughs) because you collect these this new art form it's just so funny right because like so the movie posters I did have when I was in college, this is uh, this is really dumb. Well, I had a Clockwork Orange, which I feel like is okay. I had a Clockwork Orange, I had Snatch, the Guy Ritchie film, and I had Animal House. And oh no, and I also had Caddyshack. So that just shows you what a <laughs> what a movie aficionado I was at the that time. That really defined you. Yeah, it really defined me. Um so, you know, whatever. What I'm trying to get to, though, <laughs> is that I, I'm on I'm on board with you here. Uh, I found the movie a lot less in exciting 
and a lot less entertaining in terms of like a visceral sense than I did when I was some kind of post-pubescent, uh, recently post-pubescent, you know, uh, world is my oyster young man. But at the same time, I wrote nine pages of notes for this movie, which is... I usually write three to five pages of notes for each of our films on direct. I wrote nine pages of notes for this. So I think just on that alone, these are this is the most notes I've ever written for a movie. So it's a thinker. There's a lot to grasp here. There's a lot to think about. Maybe it's my familiarity in my younger years with this movie that allowed me to dive into a little bit more of a subtextual level. But I will say there's a lot to sink your teeth into, which I think is ultimately why this movie is so entertaining and ultimately satisfying. I mean, it's it's two hours long, and it flies by. It f- zooms by, and even in a way that even like Pulp Fiction doesn't zoom by. Pulp Fiction, you feel like you watched a two and a half hour movie. This movie is over two hours, and it feels like a ninety minute flick. It it absolutely buzzes by, and I think what's fantastic about the film is that it's because of the philosophies that are being espoused and i'd be curious to know how much is it chuck how do you pronounce his last palinuk palinuk i'd be curious to know how much of these philosophy he really digs and how much is he has found a interesting vein to write about because it's it's sort of a neo ayn rand machismo mm-hmm. individualism that Similar to how the uh, the Starship Troopers movie, the original Starship Troopers movie, or material, the book, Mm -hmm. is very fascist, and uh, the writer, I can't pull his name up at the top of my head, he really believes some of that stuff. Uh He was very, and it really borders on fascism. Uh, And there is that same, and so the movie was, poking fun at him with all of the hmm. the materials and the, the commercials and how they watch TV and would you like to know more and really the gung-ho us versus them attitude. Yeah. And this movie has some very similar veins of, oh, is that what... It, you know, when they're in the bus and they're looking at the underwear model picture going, mm-hmm. is that what a real man's supposed to look like? Right. And then we have Brad Pitt and half naked yeah. for a large portion of the movie. Well, not it's not even a large portion of the movie. It is the next scene is the first <laughs> time we see Brad Pitt shirtless and he looks like one of those underwear models in the bus. And I feel like that stuff is the tongue in cheek wink wink. Hey guys, this may be a viscerally fun experience, but it's actually bullshit. I I do feel like Chuck Palahniuk doesn't believe in all of this nihilist bullshit. I think that he's somebody who probably wrestles like a lot of us with the casual consumerist lifestyle, especially as Americans and especially as, you know, the white privileged class in this country. We don't really have to, they say in this movie, you don't have to worry about crime, you don't have to worry about terrorism even, like, you know, it's you basically just do your thing, keep going every day, buy your Ikea catalog, and that's how you become fulfilled. Um Palinuk understands that. I mean, Palinuk, is, he's a Northwest guy. He's from Portland. And uh, I would say that he's definitely not endorsing any of the Tyler Durderism. Durdenism? Durdenesque? Durdenoski? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think that he's not endorsing any of these thoughts, but I do think that 
you know, it's something that David Foster Wallace said in his famous commencement speech is do not default to your base emotions. It's something that's very, very, uh, very hard not to do. Like somebody cuts you off of traffic, you get pissed off. Uh, somebody's taking too long in line for the grocery. It's uh, suddenly this travesty. If somebody offends you on Facebook, even if you don't know them, even if they live in a different country, you have to write back to them and tell them what an idiot they are. Like this kind of entire presidential campaigns are built on. It. <laughs> well, we won't go there. <laughs> although we could. I mean, we could do an hour on the uh, on the tr- the relations. Yeah. Well, well, okay, let's stop there. But uh, we could go an hour <laughs> on Fight Club beats the 2016 election. But um. But I think it's I think it's right. You know, it's just, like I feel like that's what Tyler Durden is. He's he's defaulting to those base primal emotions, and I mean we can get into it. I have an Eric's crappy fan theory for this movie, which I actually think isn't that crappy. Oh, my favorite! <laughs> I don't think let's hear it. I don't think we've had one of these in a long time. It's been a long time. I hope it has to do with the seven deadly sins. It does not. Uh. So my Eric's crappy fan theory for Fight Club on this rewatch, which is probably my sixth or seventh time watching the movie, is that Tyler Durden is not the only created character in this world. I was beginning to wonder this too. Let's hear it. Let's hear it out. Let's see if we go the same. I place. think Marla is probably also a figment of his imagination. Absolutely, and it comes across especially in the line when they're talking about duvets. And Tyler Durden says, why does a person like you are meaning to know what a duvet is? Like in the hunter-gatherer sense of the word. And it's so interesting to go to that and to to call out that primal hunter-gatherer beginning of civilization human being type of thing. Because if you look at Marla and you look at Tyler, Tyler is a hunter and Marla is a gatherer. And, you know, you can tie, you know, the masculine to the feminine here. There's a lot of different parallels that you can draw here. But it is interesting to me that if you watch it, if you watch the movie, obviously knowing that Tyler is the narrator, and if you watch the movie that Marla is also a figment of his imagination, it actually plays out and it works. It works throughout the entire movie. Uh, there's like one scene where it doesn't work that kind of works against it, and that's when they are at the support group and they and uh, the narrator confronts her at the support group and they're talking to each other during the pair-off session. It, he would be by himself during that session, but uh, but he can also transport himself. But there's also a lot of stuff that kind of supports this idea that Marla is also a figment of his imagination along with Tyler. So uh, I could get into that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, and it's very, that was when he brings up the fact, the the language in the movie is so charged that it's a nice movie to rewatch because now you're watching for those. It's like watching The Sixth Sense and the second time through seeing all of the little moments that tease at the fact that there is yeah. something amiss. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I wrote in my notes that, a little bit that this was one of the first great dual personalities and you don't know Mm -hmm. and that's the big twist at the end and now and i can't remember the last movie where i saw this but i know that i look for it and it's one of the solutions when i'm trying to puzzle out uh think in tv shows and movies where there's characters that are a bit abstract and preferably binary Mm -hmm. compared to each other Mm -hmm. uh but when the narrator when we can just call him jack 
uh, is at the support group. He says, yeah. Marla is the mirror to me. She yeah. is, That's the hypocrisy. And that's a very introspective thing to do. And that's what made me think that she is, in fact, another figment. It is. Right. And it's based in the the feminine in himself. And that's, yeah. of course, what Durden is the opposite of. He is this masculinity writ large mm-hmm. that is complaining about a generation of men raised by women, which is a wholly screwed up statement that I just have a hard time. It it comes up in a bunch of clips yeah, it does. for this movie. And every time I hear it, it grates on my nerves in a lot of ways. It's yeah, because it falls into that realm of, Oh, the, the generation prior was so much better because <laughs> Da, da 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 Well, I know that's and the funny it's thing. Not every generation has its problems, yeah. and we find these stupid things to blame it on. Well, you're right, and that's the thing. I feel like that's Palinuk. I feel like that's Fincher coming out and saying, you know, it, presenting this mindset, and it's really great to me. It's the same thing with Tarantino. I'm sorry, I know I'm going all over the place, but my mind's running a million miles a second because this movie makes you think. Tarantino does all of this gore grindhouse all of this stuff that is at like base level human reactive entertainment like it's like we're gonna make this as extreme as possible for your entertainment but it's interesting because like you know when i was in the theater watching the hateful eight there were people in the theater who were like laughing at when you know, uh, Kurt Russell's character kept punching. You know the the uh, the prisoner Daisy. Daisy, yes, kept punching the prisoner in the face, and you felt like there were certain people in the theater who were like just enjoying watching a woman getting punched in the face, and it's like these base emotion people, and it's interesting because yeah, those people are going to get something out of the film experience. They're going to have a good time because. It's it's appealing to some kind of base primal emotion that they exhibit, but it was interesting because you could like hear the pockets in the theater of the people who thought that was funny or thought that one alone was entertaining, and the other people who were like taking the step back and looking at it for more of a societal thing or more of a story based thing or where are we going with this, who weren't reacting to those primal base emotions. It goes back to that David Foster Wallace: don't try to not go to your default emotions. So in that very same sense, where Tarantino can appeal to you if you go to those default emotions, but it also, if you take a step back and try to look at it from a higher standpoint, there's a lot to grasp there from a story standpoint and something to think on and chew on. It's the same thing in this movie. There's a lot in this movie that you could just be like, oh, primal-based emotion. Yeah, we're a generation raised by women. We don't need any more women in our lives, blah, blah, blah. Like, that, if, you, if that appeals to your base emotion, okay, but... You can also take a step back and understand what is that actually saying about society? What is that actually saying about the way that we react to these things? And I feel like that's where all of a sudden this movie becomes the type of movie that I write nine pages of notes on. Yeah, it's it's profound. And this is not a wholly original Levi thought, mm-hmm. but I recall reading about the reason that we have such a apocalypse centered entertainment industry right now. We love apocalypse movies. Yeah. We love zombies. We love doomsday preppers. We have this notion that if things went down, if it got all turned back to the beginning, we'd be 
in, as an individual, you look at your in yourself yeah. and you go, "I'd be fine. Right? I'd be kicking it. <laughs> I'd have my tribe. I'd be fishing, hunting, yeah. gathering, farming. No, we'd all be terrible. Yeah, we'd be wiped out." Simply by nature, the planet is such a harsh creature, and we have worked for thousands of years to raise our survival rate as a whole, and for some reason, this weird individual trait still strikes up, and you go, I'm better than everybody, and all it would take for that to be entirely obvious is for civilization's luxuries to get out of my way. That's when I would shine. And it's total horseshit. Oh, it is. And then on the flip side of that, we've been building this society over thousands of years, and we're sitting here, you and I are sitting here, on the top of this societal heap. I love the Louis C.K. line where he's like, you know, in order to be us, you have to be so evil. Because there are so many people in the world who are suffering because of our consumerist lifestyle. Like, they, their lives suck so that our lives could rule. There's a certain amount of shit that, that you have to be able to contextualize just being, like, where we are right now in society. You and me speaking. I, I was listening to this, um, I was listening to Elon Musk. And he was talking about how in his mind, and he's talking about his theory, I don't know how tongue-in-cheek it was, but he was talking about this theory that the the world is probably some kind of virtual simulation that we're all a part of, and that it's some kind of you know digital thing that we've been plugged into, and that there's probably billions and billions of these digital worlds that have been created by some kind of prime you know, master race who <laughs> kind of controls all this stuff. And he was going through this, and I'm like, you know what? This is the type of thing that only a billionaire can come <laughs> up with. And, you know, whatever. Maybe he's right. Maybe we're living in the Matrix. And maybe he's just the one who's smart enough to figure it out. But if you're a uh, person working in a sweatshop in the third world and trying your hardest to earn, you know, just enough enough money per day to put enough food on the table to make it to the next day, you don't come up with that theory because you realize that if somebody did create this this uh, you know virtual reality simulation that we're all living in, why the hell would they create your life? It's this these blinders that you get living in the privileged class, and so I feel like this movie tries to get at that, but it's like. It's this interesting thing. I think it does go back to that David Foster Wallace of don't go to your base emotions. We can be dissatisfied with our consumerist nature, but if you go to your base emotions, you're simply returning. You're, you're regressing, basically. Well, and the snake eats it t- its tail in this movie because Tyler Durden goes from wearing the the... The entire time he is dressed fanciful, but at the end mm-hmm. he has this neo-barbaric costume... You know, he's wearing the fur coat with the print T-shirt with no sleeves, and he's got the shades when he he reveals the truth to the narrator Mm -hmm. that they are one and the same. He is dressed to start this, his own his own brand. He has made his own brand, and all of these people that have come to Fight Club who are looking for something, they just walked into... A different McDonald's. They chose a different identity, and it's corporate is uh, really a a 
a sneaky term that we put on things to say, oh, they're big and they're bad, but my thing over here is cool because it's smaller. Mm-hmm. And really, everybody's competing. For everybody everybody <laughs> wants to be on top of the heap. Right. Whether you're big or small, that's what we're all gunning for. Yep. I mean, so, this is one of the main things. You know, I was a church kid, and one of the things that really confused me was the meek shall inherit the earth. And the older I get, the more I understand the meek shall inherit the earth. Because frankly, all of the warring and all of the fighting and all of the violence and all of the strength ultimately falls in upon itself because it just becomes this massive pile-on. And once all of that dust settles, the people who sat back and didn't partake in it, those are the ones, those will be the only ones who are left. And it's this movie kind of reiterates that point. Such a good movie. I really, yeah. And all of the, I'm so happy that we're doing Fincher and I love seeing the progression we have now in his films because he takes all of his Fincherisms and he gets really a little bit, uh, not, anarchy but he tries to be i would say it's almost this weird viral motion you know he's trying to put moments in this film that make it seem homemade and dirty uh, from the final shot of one big dong at the end of the movie (laughs) to tyler durden talking about being the all singing all dancing crap of the world as the as the film shakes and kind of blows out yep. to showing you little, to showing you the secrets of the film industry, like cigarette burns, <laughs> which, which is now something anymore. I can't unsee. But they don't exist anymore. Beca- yeah, I'm trying to think of where I have seen. No, like, they when don't you exist. Get- but that's one of the things that this movie. And we talked about David Fincher's movies being timeless. The cigarette burns don't exist anymore because everybody has digital projectors now, so they just run them off a thumb drive. They don't have to actually do the big reel. Do they go back and actually? When they digitally remaster stuff, do they take out those things? I'm sure they do. Yeah, they, I'm sure they have 35 millimeter prints that you don't have to actually swap out. That they do. Yeah, so that will be lost on the next the generation. VHS is getting magnetized and destroyed. Mm-hmm. That'll be something that Link, my kid, will not understand. <laughs> yeah, when what he sees are they this doing movie. there? Yeah, don't worry about it. It's magnets. <laughs> it's magnets, and we used to do magnetic tape to watch things. Yep. Because we're we gotta watch our movies. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, man. I, that, I guess that's ultimately why. I mean, I listened to the uh, the commission cast about this movie, and I, I think ultimately Aaron said, you know, he can enjoy the movie without having to uh, enjoy Tyler Durden's philosophy. And I also read on the forums. I think Davy Mack. Davey Mack was saying that uh, he's got a great write-up on the forums, by the way. I'm not going to be able to recant the whole thing, but I do encourage people to go to forums.ballmove.com and read Davey Mack's take on it because I think it's really interesting. Ultimately, he wasn't very satisfied with the movie, but I do think that it comes to the point where it is you have to take it tongue-in-cheek and you have to see that this is the path you can go down. if you. It's, this is the path of cynicism that you can go down when trying to rationalize your own reality as a privileged American. So this is this is that rabbit hole that you can go down <laughs> that, that is extremely destructive. 
and that I think ultimately the movie is not endorsing this point of view, although I do think a lot of people think that it endorses that point of view. I think it's easy to take just the cursory view of it, and like I said, I think the hypocrisy was most apparent on this viewing. I think before I saw a film that was Brad Pitt trying to be not a pretty boy in movies, even though he totally still is in this. Yep. Uh, it's 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 fun. I enjoy that aspect, and I'm glad that we got to watch this movie again in this context. Because I think if I was not taking a close critical eye to it, I'd I'd probably miss some of that stuff again. And knowing Fincher now the way that I do, I it's it's fun. It is fun seeing the t- the the tongue in cheek stuff. And there is a a good video of them doing the they got some mo- man movie award. Uh, and it was like 2009. Mel Gibson was handing out the awards, so oh, that I think I an remember idea this. of what time period was this but on they, like Spike TV? Yes, it was Spike TV. They had, like the giant. It was like the award was like a giant, like three foot hammer or like some kind of giant phallus that they would. Yeah, it was. Both. Yeah, but they got up. It was Edward Norton, David Fincher, and Brad Pitt, and they got up and thanked everybody for totally feeding into exactly what Tyler Durden was fighting against. Yeah. And please go buy the the DVD uh, coming to Blu-ray soon. And it was fantastic. It was really an intellectual way to approach Mm -hmm. such a dumb award show. (laughs) That's the thing. I feel like this movie does appeal to the base emotions. And that's what, when did this movie come out? What's what's the year? 1999. 1999. I was 14 years old. And, you know, this movie became an instant classic. uh, And watched it a lot of times in high school, watched it a lot of times in college. And it was like the dude flick, man. And I feel like when you're in that like hormonal, you know, edge of adulthood time, this, this type of movie really speaks to you. I think the big thing that speaks to you is the loneliness. I mean, the narrator talks about how he's lonely and that's a big thing about this. He doesn't have any friends and that's why he could go down this rabbit hole. Like, in a lot of ways, when you think of kind of the neckbeard sitting in the basement, uh, you know, uh, typing hate messages to women on Twitter, that's kind of who this guy became (laughs) in some ways. It's just his hate messages were written, bombed out on the sides of skyscrapers. But it is. It's it's kind of that lonely, misunderstood, I'm trying to do everything society tells me to do, but it's not working out, frustrated, angry, you know, impatient thing. And this is I like I said, I think this is this movie basically illustrates what happens when you take that anger, frustration when you internalize it and then you take it to its end, this is what you get to. And I don't think that it's any kind of endorsement of that. And it does such a a part of it may be just in how well the acting was done. Watching Brad Pitt give that chemical burn to Edward Norton and the speech that he gives about this is your, you know, don't shut this out. This is your pain. Mm -hmm. It's very convincing. It's very easy to think, if only I had something to challenge me, and especially for people sitting in their basements, you know, <laughs> a couple of kids, of middle class kids sitting in college, yeah, 
you know, at watching this movie, it's very easy to go, well, you know, life's not hard enough to push me to these extremes. I have mm. to go to class and, and you kind of, you want that challenge, but you really don't, you just don't know it. Yeah. Yet. Well, that's a funny thing. Like I remember, uh, I remember when I was like 19 years old, I have a vivid memory of this because it was one of those things that I like digitally saved. I hit the save button in my own brain, but I was like standing in the hallway of this house that my parents had rented a room for me in San Diego. I was going to college uh, it didn't work. I was basically just chilling out every day, partying, having a good time. I was sitting in the hallway, I was standing in the hallway, and I was just thinking to myself, my life will never be as good as, as it is right now. I was 19 years old. Dude, my life is so crazy much better, right? <laughs> today than it was back then but to my 19 year old self i was like my life will never be as good as as it is right now i look at my life now i would definitely not trade it for that 19 year old life um and so it is it's funny it's like this whole thing of you know you're you're on the precipice of adulthood you're really uh ant antsy about trying to enter the workforce and becoming another drone and all this stuff you're gonna lose your individuality and and the world is telling you to be one way, and you don't want to be that way, and you're the rebel, and yeah. Uh, and you've got a refrigerator of nothing but condiments, <laughs> just like the narrator. By the way, somebody on the Which forums, you still do. <laughs> no, but somebody on the forums... I don't have a refrigerator full of condiments. I'm just saying the condiments are the constant. <laughs> but the, other, the thing about it is that we do eat all the food in the fridge before we buy new food. I would say that that is conserve, conserve, conservationist when you uh, when it comes to food. You should be growing your own food in the backyard <laughs> using your poop as fertilizer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. All right, let's go. We, I think we've talked enough about the philosophy of this movie, and I'm sure we'll get back to some of that. But let's go through the movie a little bit here. Let's. Um, so you know, the, I love that they talk about inserting the single frame of the porn into the movie. Uh, you know, they talk about Tyler Durden doing that during his night job at the cinema, mm-hmm. uh, because they do that a lot in the first like ten minutes of the movie. I counted four flashes of Tyler. I'm pretty certain that is how many there are. Did you There's get four? The one... Yep. Okay. There's one at the copy machine. There's one at the doctor's office. There's one at the support group, and then there's one like on top of Marla. And I think that's when, I think that's when Marla is like standing in the middle of the cars, which was the first thing that made me think that she wasn't real because she's like standing in the middle of traffic and she doesn't watch, she doesn't look both ways when she crosses the street. And yeah, I don't care how no reckless way. you are, you're going to get hit pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Just Especially in whatever this unnamed city is that has a lot of traffic going on. Exactly. So that was like the moment where I was like, I'm not sure Marla's real. But this is another really interesting thing that if you watch this movie that I didn't catch until I wa- until this viewing. And that is that I think that the narrator's name is Tyler. It's either Tyler or he came up with the name Tyler. No, it I I'm fairly positive his actual name is Tyler. He just Yeah. They never reference himself with it until the end. Well, and that's the that's there's, I think there's a lot of things that point to that. I think, because a lot of people call him Jack, because, you know, Jack is, you know. Yeah, I am Jack's colon. Exactly. Um, uh, but Marla asks 
him his name and then they do a cut to the next scene and that's before tyler durden shows up which means that either he didn't tell him her name his name then or he told marla that his name was tyler at least and quite possibly tyler durden now we know that he comes up with names fake names so tyler may not be his actual name but he at least told marla that his name was tyler before tyler durden showed up probably he probably told her that my assumption is that the editing is removing instances where he uses his own name, mm-hmm. that he would use it instinctively, and that he's simply not aware of it when he does it. Yeah. And and but I don't think he told her his name was Tyler Durden because I think the Durden is the dif- differentiator. When people call him Mister Durden, that's when he starts freaking out. Which actually yeah. makes sense. I think his first name's Tyler, but his probably his last name is not Durden, because that also kind of helps out with this whole scenario where he's both of these people at the same time. People would probably call him Tyler a lot, and he would just be like, "Oh yeah, my name's Tyler." So yeah, I, it's I think that's it's weird how you get into your own head about your name. I don't yeah. know if you have this problem, but when when Liz uses my name directly, mm-hmm. it weirds me out. Because she yeah. doesn't use it that often. Your yeah. conversations with your wife are generally consistent, constant, and you don't. There's just no call to use in each other's name in the conversation because yep. you were speaking direct. So when she uses it, I look at her and go, <laughs> "What? What is it?" It's like the close-ups in some of <laughs> in Fincher's movies. It calls mm-hmm. attention to my name in a weird way that makes <laughs> me stop and go, "Wait, what's important about this?" Like Tyler Durden's <laughs> briefcase next to. Ed, to the narrators on the plane, yeah. you're going, well, that's weird. Yeah, it's a little odd. Uh, the other thing here that makes me think that Marla is actually not real, and I think this is the best evidence of it, is that she calls him at Paper Street. And there's and that, there's no way that she could have gotten his phone number at Paper Street. I'm surprised that I would say that the phones don't work there, but the cop calls him too. The cop does call him, but the fact of the matter is he gave Marla his phone number before he met Tyler Durden. And then they didn't have any contact until she calls him at Paper Street and tells him that she's overdosed and she's she's attempting suicide. So there's no way that she could have gotten his phone number at Paper Street. And... And yet she calls him there, which makes me think that Marla is not real either. Okay, here's my one counter to the Marla theory. They do drag her in at the end. Mm-hmm. They is do. that they drag is that actually replacement for how uh the narrator gets there? They... Does he not do all that crazy <laughs> stuff? He actually gets deposited and his <laughs> physical body is there when Marla gets there? That's that's one theory, I think. The other theory is that he actually does commit suicide. That when he shoots himself in the face, which I think is another big thing that people have problems with this movie, is if you shoot yourself in the face, you, you're going to die, probably. I mean, the, So this is... Uh, so this, although, is, this is his, uh, you know, hallucination-inducing brain firing its last synapses. This is his pan's labyrinth. Because he sees her out the window. He sees her get off the bus, which does not necessarily have to be a a real construction. The only problem Mm -hmm. is that the rest of the guys haul her in, but it's after he shoots himself, which to me says he actually died and these are the last synapses firing in his brain. This is beautiful. I'm really digging this. That's why I think it all works. Yeah. Um, All the dots connect. Yeah. Let's put up a board with some red string. 
<laughs> now who's the crazy ones? <laughs> um, so I that's the thing. And I think that it does make the movie a little bit more interesting because you don't have to lean so much on the masculine testosterone-fueled uh, bullshit that Brad Pitt is spewing because you can also see... You see two things. One, you see the more feminine side that... Uh, you know that that the main character is exhibiting through Marla, but at the same time, you also get to see kind of his misogynistic view of what he thinks women are too. So I feel like it's it's more it gives you a more well rounded character, and yeah, I mean, I just I just think it makes more sense. And that gatherer thing, I think, really comes into play the hunter and gatherer relationship because like she goes into a laundromat and she gathers clothes and then goes and sells them. She goes she's going to these uh support groups gathering experiences. She's not getting the same thing out of it that the narrator's getting out of it. She's not getting the peace of mind that he gets. She's just trying to gather experiences from people. Um and not to mention she shows up that when 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 we really uh when he really gets like annoyed that she shows up she shows up to a support group where the men don't have testicles anymore <laughs> like they've literally been kind of demanded in some ways so it's interesting how it's kind of that gatherer is the marla character and the hunter is tyler and i i really do think it enhances the film watching experience when you watch it that way this is good stuff you should do a youtube video Oh, I don't have enough time for that, man. <laughs> One uh, more thing on your plate. Yeah, the, I mean, the other thing is that he's obviously going through a quarter-life crisis here because he is obsessed with death at the beginning of this thing. And he's just, you know, it's the thing. He's just trying to feel alive. He's in this quarter-life crisis, and he's so he's going to death to, like, uh, chronic and uh, what what is it? what's the term when you're terminal and terminal support groups. Like, he's obsessed with just hearing these people talk about death as something that makes him sleep like a baby. Um, and, you know, he, he's just kind of constantly kind of obsessed with this stuff until the point when he gets in the car accident with Tyler, which he causes himself, and then Tyler kind of goes away. I feel like that's kind of an epiphany to him, and it's kind of the wake-up moment that we saw at the end of the game when he falls and he kind of confronts death and then he's able to have some kind of catharsis afterwards. Unfortunately, I feel like that catharsis gets thrown out of whack by Tyler Durden's character because Tyler gets afraid of the catharsis and therefore puts the, like, steps on the gas when it comes to the whole Project Mayhem national plan expansion. Um, Well, and I think you could also consider it that is the lowest moment. That is the moment of... You know, the opposite of Nirvana's suffering, that is his supreme moment of suffering, is when he is truly injured by this experience to the degree that he simply sleeps through things for a while. And when he comes out, then he is able to, you know, then he begins his upswing to the point where he's almost neutered. Yeah. (laughs) And And then does have his moment of Nirvana, and that is when he realizes that, he is in he can take control that that is all that is waiting is that he has to take control and that's the mm-hmm. i think the the real are the, the the solution to this issue of self-loathing over consumerist tendencies is to realize that you have control that you make these decisions and you're okay with that yeah i 
sometimes wonder, you know, you and I, we play a lot of video games. And when I, mm-hmm. there are times where oh, I really should have slept or I should have worked on a project, something <laughs> that, you know, yeah. advances my career. Yep. But I enjoyed that time. It was nice to have a restful time where I am not doing something intensive. Mm-hmm. And that realization helps to, helps me to justify things that there are others who would frown upon video games or board games, you know, the people who would say that those are that's a childish activity. Right. Who are usually people who are drinking and still partying. <laughs> yeah, into, to well into their thirties. Yeah, they're or, trying to find find their own place. Yeah, you know, everybody gets their own things. It's that it's the being okay with having hobbies thing. And I, I feel the guilt all the time, man. Like I had nothing to do this weekend and I basically played Hearthstone and I played a game <laughs> of uh, Terra Mystica with my buddy. And, like, I could have spent this weekend doing a YouTube video about Fight Club or, uh, <laughs> or you know, working on my board game design or, or doing anything more productive. But instead, I kind of sat on my ass and chilled out. And there is a part of me that's like, what are you doing, dude? Like, I'm 30 years old. I'm at the point now where I need to start making my time count. <laughs> but at the same time, I still get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And when I look at the creative things that I want to do... I correlate them to the things that I already do. Like, I listen to podcasts, so I want to make podcasts. I like board games, so I'd love to make a board game that people like. Um, One of the reasons why I watch so many movies is because I'm really interested in filmmaking. And I actually love getting out there and shooting stuff and editing stuff. I just don't ever put A and B, A times B times C equals X together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> basically my uh the x doesn't equal the the price of the settlement so then i uh pay out yeah the price of the some, recall at some point we got this guilty feeling over enjoying ourselves and i don't know why well, and that's because i think we a enjoy little... we enjoy the same things that we enjoyed when we were kids which i feel like is ubiquitous i mean if you worked if you like working on cars you probably worked on cars when you were a kid or I don't know if you like write. I mean, I don't. I think we kind of find our passions when we're children. That's why that that age is so magical because the world really is open. And then, like today, like I'd love to learn Japanese. I'm probably never going to do it because I'm not passionate about it. But like, if I was 11 years old and I was really passionate about learning Japanese, I'd probably be fluent in Japanese by now. Um, yeah, I think it's just the thing of like, I don't know, being seen as childish by other people. Well, that's, you know, we went over a lot of this with Edgar Wright, too. Mm-hmm. And there's there are similarities in the the mundane things that Fincher highlights. We get a lot of cuts of items that are describing a, a life. Yeah. You know, we used to get, we get cuts of Simon Pegg and his morning routine. And here we get the a cut of the narrator's boss... We see his name tag on his desk, and I'm trying to find <laughs> my notes where it just—it's a fast series of items, and then yeah. the person, yep. and so we get the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. And it was a nice film moment to see Fincher doing that because usually he we see things, but it's we get it at the montage, usually the start of the day. He usually uses it for uh, distinct characters, yep. the protagonists. And so it's nice to see him kind of panning out to a larger larger set of characters. Yeah, I, it's really fun to watch the fourth movie. Like, in doing this now, 
Doing it with Tarantino and with um, Guillermo del Toro especially, because Edgar Wright only has four movies. But I love, once you get to the fourth movie, you really start to get a sense of the director. And and it gets a lot easier to correlate the movies together. So that's why I'm excited to see. Because this is a very common theme kind of going across all of his movies, except for Alien 3, which I don't really count. Because I, I, <laughs> I think of that as like spring training for David Fincher. Um, <laughs> Exhibition match. Didn't count. Yeah, exactly. But you look at Seven. Seven looks at these themes. Um the game really looks at these themes, and Fight Club looks at these themes. This kind of consumerist culture, or where do you fit in the world, or how do you cope with unfulfilled potential? Uh, but they just do it at different levels. Like Seven is really on the blue collar level. Um, the game is obviously on the on the ninety nine or the one percent level, <laughs> not the ninety nine percent, but the one percent <laughs> level. And then this one is kind of that yuppie level, that kind of middle ground level between. Uh, between the blue collar and the 1%. And so I think we need to keep an eye out for this theme throughout the rest of his movies is kind of this unfulfilled, coping with unfulfilled potential. Because I feel like that's kind of at the heart of what a lot of Fincher does. That'll make social network. That'll be a really interesting conversation to revive with what happens when you have this uh, exponential Uh success of a character. (laughs) Yeah, when you go from the nobody to the 1%, how does that affect you? That's interesting. Although I don't know if we get fully to the 1% quite. We don't get to the Zuckerberg University or, <laughs> or I own all the data for everyone in the world. Um, oh, I had a couple other things in my notes about Marla. Like the fact that I think she's – like the more and more I think about it, like for one, she replaces his power animal. It was a penguin and then it becomes Marla. Um. So I think seeing her as kind of the power animal, like this this created power animal, is interesting. Also, there's a scene which which could discount this. Is there's an entire scene between Tyler Durden and her where Tyler goes to her apartment after she's done the suicide attempt and kind of wrangles her and brings her to Paper Street. And she opens the door and she goes, you got here fast. But this whole scene is narrated by the narrator and starts off with him saying, I could see it all in my head. Which makes me think that 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 whole thing could be construed, yeah, and he, he could literally this. just be a homeless guy squatting in an <laughs> abandoned building and uh, taking care of himself on a mattress. <laughs> so yeah, if you pull the veil away, and that house is not as bright and colorful and eccentric on the inside. It is yeah. a rat's nest. I one thing that I wanted to bring up. You're talking about those little moments. Mm-hmm. I love, and I don't know if you caught this line, when you get to the end of the film, when Durden has Jack in the chair with a mm-hmm. gun on him, and the narrator says, I still don't have anything to say, or yeah. I still can't think of anything. Uh-huh. And Durden himself goes, ah, oh, flashback humor. That's such a weird self-aware mm-hmm. moment very those, meta it's the same it's the same moment where they just they throw it past you yep. and i'm sure this is the first time that i've heard it the same with the wine glass that uh mills gets or somerset gets in seven when he gets wine in a pint glass and he looks at it weird <laughs> yeah. as the train's going by and that's it they don't it's we we get so many close-ups of so many 
mundane moments and they're Mm -hmm. so well done that there are these tiny moments that you could easily zoom in focus and really accentuate them but fincher is playing this little game on the sidelines that i just love playing along with especially when these are movies that you've seen you know this is the first list where i think i've seen everything but house of cards so Mm -hmm. to get this to get multiple passes lets you kind of start to pick up on those things. Yeah, I mean, the other thing super meta in this movie is Brad Pitt, when he does his little monologue, when there's a bunch of people who show up to Fight Club, and he says, you know, there's, I see a lot of new faces tonight. That means a lot of people are breaking the first rule of Fight Club. And he goes into this monologue where he says, you know, we were all raised to think that we would grow up to be millionaires and movie stars. Brad Pitt <laughs> is saying those lines. Jared Leto is in that room. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Jared Leto is... was not the big guy at this point, but at this point, Brad Pitt was pretty much a movie star. Yeah. Like, he was a headlining movie star. He's a big face on the poster. Even though Edward Norton's the main character in the movie, Brad Pitt's <laughs> face is the face on the poster, okay? So I feel like that could not have been unintentional, uh, having Brad Pitt say those lines and almost smirking into the camera as he says them. Like, that kind of stuff uh, is the stuff that gets me really excited about David Fincher. We talked a lot about the game. It's been talked about a lot with the game, how that's an allegory for Hollywood and that it's kind of these Hollywood effects and it's this big story and you want to get wrapped up in it and blah, blah, blah. Correlation to Hollywood. But I feel like that line for Brad Pitt where he says, you know, we're supposed, we're all said we're going to grow up to be millionaires and movie stars as he almost looks into the camera while he says it um that he himself is a part of that you know calling out celebrity magazines when brad pitt and angelina jolie of course they were together when this movie came out but they're on the cover of like every celebrity magazine um it's really interesting like you can't look at that stuff in a vacuum you can't even look at it in the vacuum of the story you have to it forces you out of that uh, it's the same thing we talked about at the beginning with the guest underwear model ad, or is that what a real man looks like? And then the next scene we see Brad Pitt with his shirt off. Like it's, it's the stuff that you can't quite escape when you just get a little bit under the surface. What are they trying to tell me with this movie? Because I don't buy that. They're trying to tell me that anarchy is the answer. There's a great interview where Fincher was talking about starting the production on this film and how he wanted to buy the script or he wanted to, buy the rights to do the movie but fox got it first and so he he worked up this whole package this deal and took it to them and said you can do this as a three million dollar like a small art film that's trying to really push the idea of anti-consumerism or we can do it for 64 million dollars we can do it with big movie stars and we can have this subversive film that is making these statements and at the same time spitting in its own eye. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's so great. It's his personality is so much fun to watch in these interviews because mm-hmm. he is so intelligent and he's thinking so thoroughly through what he's doing. And I'm loving, it. I'm eating up every, every minute of interview stuff that I can find on him because he really, He's very talented. He is absolutely yeah. everything that his name is on 
I will go see without question. He's just a really smart guy, you know? I mean, it's a great departure for us with the direct podcast because, not to say <laughs> it comes across <laughs> as if I'm Smart guy, total departure. Yeah, uh, not to say that Tarantino and Wright and Del Toro aren't smart, but Tarantino, Wright, and Del Toro are big movie fans, and they're trying to make beautiful movies that call back to everything that they love about cinema. I really do feel like... David Fincher is trying to be subversive. He's making these gigantic blockbuster movies with the nastiest shit in them, and we just eat it up as a consumer base. I mean, the amount of soccer moms that were in Gone Girl kind of blows my mind. (laughs) Like, that movie is gory as hell. But, like... It's it's so interesting to me because he knows exactly how to manipulate an audience. He's so freaking good at manipulating audiences. And he's you just feel like he's standing behind the camera just smirking the whole time. Just thinking, yeah, you think you like that for that reason, but you actually don't. It's it, he's just he's working on a different level, man, and it's so such a pleasure to go through his movies. It's way more enjoyable than admittedly I thought it would be going into Fincher. Um, when when we had the three directors, we had Fincher, Nolan, and Paul Thomas Anderson. And honestly, Fincher was like my least favorite of the three. And now I am so happy that we're going through this journey with Fincher because there's a lot of subtext and there's a lot to digest. I This has been also the most educational in terms of how to – the base – Uh, actions that you can take with setting up shots. There was Mm -hmm. a moment I had to pause and watch it a couple times where Durden and the narrator, the first time that they fight outside the bar and I was originally watching because I wanted to see how the conversation was going back and forth kind of like they show in the every frame of painting for this. Uh, You know, they're showing Brad Pitt and they're showing Edward Norton and it's really straightforward in that moment and then they throw the punch and they pan out and it's this uh, single perspective with the door of the bar right behind them, which is this big, I think, metaphor for the moment. This is Edward Norton. He has stepped outside of the build of his own mental building and he's on a to- he's in a totally different place right now, fighting with himself. But when he punches Brad Pitt. He catches him in the air, and Brad Pitt's kind of going, oh, why'd you hit me in the air? And then Brad Pitt comes back and punches him again, and the whole shot tracks with the punch. Yeah. And it shows you the force of power behind Durden's punch compared to Edward Norton. It just it moves the whole frame. And even when you get to the end, again, they're having the conversation, and the narrator is in the chair, and Tyler Durden is standing, and the camera is looking is level with the narrator in the chair. But then it has to look up at Durden, and you see that power dynamic in the shot. Or when you see the fight between uh, Durden and Lou, you know mm. the camera is moving around in a lot of different ways to try and follow the energy of the scene to the until. You know, Brad Pitt's on top, and we're looking down at Lou covered in blood. Yeah, and he just gives in to Dylan's yeah. demands to use the bar. It's the and it's it's very simple stuff. It's Quentin Tarantino is doing a lot, and he does it really well. And that 
is the kind of art that I would have trouble doing myself because I, because he thinks he's so far outside the box. Fincher is able to take that kit of parts, those basic concepts, and he he really it's the it's like Leonardo da Vinci. He he only has to use three lines, but you have to know exactly where to put those three lines. Right. He's very meticulous. He's very yeah. very meticulous. And uh, you know the other directors we've the other directors we've covered are meticulous in their own ways. I think I mean Tar- Tarantino's meticulous. Uh, Edgar Wright very meticulous. Um, yeah, but but he's got his own special flavor, man. T- like Fincher has a very clear point of view, and I'm very happy we're watching his movies. You you mentioned. So I'd like to quickly touch because this is totally a pre nine eleven movie. Like this movie cannot be made post nine eleven because yeah. it's basically oh, yeah. about terrorism. This is yes, this is domestic terrorism with yeah. no no religious context. This is just straight up anarchy, right? But like be like talking about building bombs in the basement. Like I feel like it would be a much harder thing if you made a movie today to be like, oh, I want to root for the guys who are making the bombs in the vans and stuff. Yeah. Like that's. That's not the type of thing that I feel like would fly, and I don't think the studio would make this movie today. But there were, like, at the late '90s, there were like there was it was a great time for mindfuck movies, and I don't know if it was because I don't know if these I'm sure these happened earlier, but there was just this time, 1998 and 1999. You had Fight Club, you had The Truman Show, and you had The Matrix, and at least for me, those three movies were kind of the big mindfuck movies. For kind of our generation. It's a great set. Yeah. To stand be, next to each other. That'd be an interesting triple feature, actually. What is a- <laughs> Fight Club, The Matrix, and The Truman Show. The movies are all based around this notion of yourself in relation to your environment. And that's mm-hmm. always what I think that move what makes movies so powerful is you're the main protagonist in your own movie. And it's right. really easy to go to a theater and detach your own ego and attach it to a character in a film. Yeah. And those movies are all, they kind of pull at, they tug at that veil that you've created for yourself saying, what if this reality that you think is totally for you is absolutely in somebody's control? And you get Elon Musk. And that's yeah, exactly. I mean, it does. It goes back to that Elon Musk comment, which I actually had a lot of issues with, <laughs> because it all of all three of those movies. A common theme th- throughout all three of those movies is really coming to grips with the American Roaring Nineties, as I like to call it, uh, consumerist, uh, you know, American privilege that people were living in. It's it is. It's that thing of man, my life is really good. What happens if my life actually isn't what I thought it was? Uh, what if there's some kind of dark subtext to all of this great stuff that's happening to me? And you know what? There is a dark subtext to it. There's a lot of people in this world who are living in poverty and who are working their f- knuckles to the bone to make your iPhone. And that's that dark subtext exists. It's probably just not on some kind of philosophical level. It's it's on a much more human level. And maybe that's some maybe that was something that in that consumerist 90s era that was something we were trying to come to grips with whereas in the post 9-11 era now it's all about catching the bad guys as opposed to worrying about our uh our 
awesome cushy lot in life well in that that air that area you're talking about like 98 to 2000 that was mm-hmm. all the dot-com bubble i mm-hmm. we were on top of the world things were so good yep yep and you know it all got kind of pulled out from under us so going back to watch these things i think we uh, it and probably it, we don't it's hard to distinguish but there's a sense of nostalgia that's probably rigged a little bit when we watch these films yeah but i still i feel like they're still affecting i think that the narrative has changed to the world is a bad place now and it's and everything is going to shit and you know we're not safe and blah 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 it's this huge narrative that we've come to and it gets perpetuated in our popular media because fight club isn't coming out in today's world and make it the same kind of coin that it made in 99 because now it's now it's seen as derivative and the only things that are making money are big tentpole superhero flicks or pixar movies like uh so that sentiment has kind of lost itself but i do feel like these movies are timeless and i do feel like a 14 year old stumbling upon fight club today would could have a very similar experience to what i had when i saw it when i was 14 bring down Uh, the man it's always, yeah. always, it's always in vogue. Uh, just want to throw out a couple other things here. Chuck Palahniuk is, I'm a big fan of P- Chuck Palahniuk and another guy who's really, really, really smart and deserves multiple, uh, multiple read throughs of all of his work. Um, another Chuck Palahniuk movie. I think it's the only other Chuck Palahniuk movie that actually got made is choke, um, starring Sam Rockwell. And that's a really interesting movie. That movie's a little bit more of a black comedy than Fight Club is. But my favorite Chuck Palahniuk book is Invisible Monsters, which has been in development hell for the last 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, But Invisible Monsters is an amazing book. Uh, And I just don't understand how they would ever make it into a movie because there are so many reveals in that book that that really only work in literary form. Because... Chuck Palahniuk sets a bunch of, sets up a bunch of characters in your mind, like you do when you're reading a book, and then he changes all of those characters. <laughs> it's a it's a great ride. Um, I've also heard that Lullaby is really good, and I've heard Survivor is really good. So uh, go out and check out uh, Palahniuk. He's also got a book of short stories called Haunted, which is uh, really interesting and grotesque and strange. Um, so I would say go check out Chuck. Go check out Chuck. Read a book. Read a book, baby. Um, dude, that's an hour. Yeah, it. I I love talking about movies with you, dude. <laughs> this is so this, much fun. But I could talk for so much longer about this movie. Like this movie is so deep. Like I I I can totally understand on the surface level not liking this movie because it is so nihilistic and bleak and dark. Uh, but it's got so much subtext that I could talk about it for a long time. And also, like I said, don't want to get into politics, but there are things in this movie that correlate directly to the narrative that we're having today in politics in America. And I feel like it's really important to kind of be like, there's two different kind of two different viewpoints. So yeah, pick pick your viewpoint. I'm sure while playing board games this week, we'll probably rehash some more. So, okay. Our secret cast. That's only for us. Yeah, exactly. Our board game cast. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, that's the show for this week. Please go to the forums, forums.ballmove.com. Next week, we got Panic Room, so there will be a forum post for that. You can also send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read it on the show. And until next week, 
I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.